Hello, my beauties. Welcome back. My guest today is Alex Kantrowitz. He is a tech reporter for BuzzFeed and his new book, Always Day One, looks at the biggest tech companies in the world and tries to work out just why they're so successful. It's easy to look at Apple's iPhone or Amazon's delivery service and say, well, of course, they're brilliant. But it has to be more than just the products that they deliver if they're consistently being successful. And trying to find out what that secret source is, is the topic of Alex's book. It's really interesting to hear from someone who's been sat down in a press meeting one-to-one with Mark Zuckerberg or met Jeff Bezos or watched CeeLo Green perform live at a tech conference in front of a 10,000 people all shouting, fuck you. So, yeah, super interesting stuff. A lot to take away and a lot of uh, insights into companies that you never thought you would get to see behind the door of. So get ready for this one. It's been a while since I mentioned this. You old-time listeners will be familiar, but new ones may not be. If I speak to an author, I will link their book in the show notes below. And if you follow that link you will be supporting the Modern Wisdom podcast at no extra cost to yourself. Also on my Amazon shop front, I have a full list of every product we have ever featured in Life Hacks and every book from every author that's ever been on the show, plus a bunch of other ones that I enjoy. And that is linked in the show notes below. So go and check that out. And yeah, if you're going to pick up the book of an author that I feature on the show, follow that link. I would really appreciate the support. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I have won Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modern wisdom. This episode is brought to you by 
AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation, vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But for now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Alex Kantrowitz. Alex Kantrowitz in the building. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Really glad to be on with you, Chris. Thanks for having me today. It's timely for me to have someone that reports on tech, given that an hour ago from when we were recording this, Elon Musk just tweeted, Tesla stock price is too high, IMO, and they're now down 11%. That's right, Chris. But to be honest, anytime you we have recorded this podcast, whether it was today, a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks from now, Elon would definitely tweet something absolutely ridiculous that would send his company in some sort of tailspin. So <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's not very surprising that he tried to tank his stack about five minutes before we hopped on here. So um, Elon's just going to keep being Elon. That's just how he does things. Elon did an Elon, didn't he? he definitely yes, he did. 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 Yes, he, went he did. And, went and did an I mean, Elon. he's... His Twitter is definitely fun to follow. I mean, you just just mostly because of the unpredictability about it. Like he's got this valuable thing in Tesla and he keeps playing with its future every time he hits that tweet button. Like for him especially, maybe he should just, you know, have someone where he has to read the tweets aloud and then they type it into the box and then they send it and that might prevent some of this stuff from happening, but it doesn't seem like he's really interested in that. So No, yeah, I think a guardian of his Twitter, you know, like you get when you've got your kids oh, yeah. and your kids aren't allowed to use the iPad for more than an hour a day or whatever. And you're like, look, That's Elon, right. this, this, this tweet's got the word stock price in it. This means that it needs to go through <laughs> five layers That's of right. security first. Maybe you don't want to send that. But um, until until he does, uh, his Twitter account's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And you're so. right. You're right as well. Despite the fact he's done that today. Whenever this gets published, whenever this episode goes live, yeah. he'll have probably done something that day too. So just go and have a look at Elon Musk's Twitter right now and see what he's done. I'd love to yeah, find out. You'd have the same reaction. Yeah. yeah it would be oh, like, I oh, that's ridiculous. He's that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, anyway, we're not yeah. talking about Elon Musk today. We're talking about your new book, Always Day One. Why is it called Always Day One? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, so Jeff Bezos gets in front of Amazon's uh, employees a couple of years ago. And he's got this note card with him, and it's at the end of this all-hands meeting. And it's a, it's a question submitted from one of his employees, and it says, what does day two look like? <laughs> this is sort of not the thing that you want to ask Jeff Bezos because he's been preaching this always day one mentality inside Amazon. And I always thought that always day one just sort of meant you want to work as hard as you possibly can. You work nights, you work weekends, you work holidays. 
And if you take your foot off the gas pedal, you're done. And so Jeff Bezos goes in front of this uh, audience and there's 10, I mean, yeah, probably more than 10,000 people in the stadium in Seattle. And you go, what does day two look like? And he says something like, day two is stasis followed by irrelevance, followed by slow, painful decline, followed by death (laughs) in front of the whole company. And he looks out and he goes, and that's why it's always day one. And, you know, I saw this clip when I was getting deep into my reporting on Amazon. And my first view of it was, oh, he is doing this hustle porn thing, work so hard, you know, work 80, 90 hours. Otherwise, you're out of Amazon. And if that was the case, I definitely wouldn't have had it, would not have had it as the title of the book. Because, I, you know, I do think that it's important to work hard, but I'm kind of skeptical of these people that say you need to work 100 hours a week or you're not going to make it. I think it's possible to have a healthy work-life balance and still do okay. What I found out that always day one meets inside Amazon is that they're always inventing the next business line without any regard for what ha- what they have today and what they had in the past. So for them, it's about reinvention. It's about let's keep building new products. We won't sit on our flagship products and wait for them to take us, um, you know, all the way because. Um, you know, right now it's just impossible to do that. In the 1920s, the average uh, company would sit on the 14, uh, Fortune 500 for 67 years. Today, it's 15 years. So that's why Amazon and, and the rest of the tech giants live in this always day one mentality. They're constantly reinventing because they know if they get too precious about the present and the past, they're going to miss the future. So there's this, this mentality that they have to continually be inventing themselves into the future or else they're done. And there's a culture that underpins it. It's not enough to have this mentality and say, we want to live in day one and just go about your business as a traditional company. What they've done, the real ingenuity inside these companies is building the culture, technology, and process that's allowed them to keep reinventing. Um, and that's helped them stay on top. How did you get such access to all of these companies? Like, who are you? Why Why should you be the person that's able to peer into the most exciting, biggest, most innovative companies on the planet? You know, that is a great question. And sometimes I've been a bit surprised, but I will say that I'm a tech reporter here in Silicon Valley, live in San Francisco. So I've spent the last five years here and I was reporting on tech in New York before that. And so I have spent a lot of time meeting with these companies in Silicon Valley. Um, and my reporting has um, has been out there people people recognize it so um, I think there might have been a sense that this book was going to have an impact and then one thing that um, I have that most tech reporters don't is a background in industrial and labor relations meaning that I've studied the nature of work and organizational behavior human resources how companies are run how people are motivated and I brought that with me here so by having that background and then looking at the tech companies and saying I want to write a book about how they how they work and what it means for the future of the way that we work and the way we lead companies to me that must have resonated yeah i think so as opposed to i imagine some tech reporters must armchair philosophize about how the world might be as opposed to perhaps someone like yourself who's got more real world experience of what actually happens within these companies what a culture like this means to the people who live it and breathe it and work it that's right yeah and i also worked in sales and marketing for three years before becoming a reporter so I have an idea of how like companies that sell products work. Um, so it's potentially that, you know, that, that background helps. But yeah, my main philosophy as a reporter is don't get lost in narratives. You know, don't try to make someone look good or try to make someone look bad. Just tell the truth. And, you know, I think that um, I think that's that's helped me out in my career for sure. That's awesome. So 
high level, what's what's the book? You're covering different companies and looking at different uh, cultures within them? Yeah, so it's all about how they put this always day one mentality into action inside their companies. And so they've done this in two, in, well, actually really three ways. One is have the mentality, right? If you have the mentality that you're going to try to milk your asset, your flagship business, and not worry about building another business, you're going to be, you're going to be screwed. So they have the mentality. The second thing is they do, they do is they view work differently than most of us do, right? So I think that we need to separate work, the work we do into two buckets. One is idea work. That's anything that's involved in coming up with new ideas and bringing it to life. And the other is execution work. You know, and that's anything that's involved in supporting the existing products that you have. So we've gone through three major transformations, or two major transformations, but three eras uh, in our work life since the factory era. You know, people forget the factory was only 100 years ago. That was dominating our economy 100 <laughs> years ago. Uh, human existence is much longer than 100 years. So we've had radical transformations in the way that we work uh, in just a century. And our systems, like our cultural systems, our leadership systems, are always a little bit slow to catch up, and they certainly have in this point. So let's start with the factory. In the industrial era, almost all the work that we did was execution work. There would be like one little bit of idea work, which came from like the owner of the factory, right? Who said, let's make widgets. And what did they hire employees to do? All execution work, just being in the factory, making widgets. Okay, then in the middle of the 1900s, we transitioned to what's called the knowledge economy, which all of a sudden employee ideas actually mattered. Uh, but because we were so process heavy, we would have a teeny tiny bit of our time. And this is what exists in most companies now, a teeny tiny bit of our time on ideal work. And still most of it was on execution work. Now we weren't pushing buttons and hitting levers like we were in the factory, but we were doing similar um, work that, that um, wasn't really involved in creating anything new. So that could be anything from moving numbers from one spreadsheet to another, or putting the same invoice in to, to buy the same product at the same amount every week or writing the same letters to the same people every week. I mean, anyone who's been in a job knows this, right? And because there's been, there was so much execution work in the knowledge economy, our ideas really haven't been taken into consideration by management. So, you know, I think that um, anyone who's, you know, people come into companies, they're creative and they're filled with energy and they want to change the way the company works. And they see all this opportunity because all this opportunity is there. Uh, and they know we can do this and, and launch this product line and we can change this process. And, hey, well, have you thought about connecting these two groups? And that energy usually lasts for the first six months or so until they're told, actually, you know, we don't really you're not really here for your ideas. You're here just to like do this one little task. And it doesn't matter how much you can contribute to making this company better. We're not actually really concerned with it. That's the message that gets sent because anyone who's brought these ideas inside the company knows generally people say, oh, you know, not really time for that. Or, you know, you were hired to do this. Why are you saying that? Um, and that's a factor of the fact that we're living in this execution work economy, because even in the knowledge economy, most companies don't have the capability to take those employee ideas and turn them into into life because they are spending all of their time supporting their existing products. OK, so. This brings me into what the tech giants do. What they've done is use technology, process automation, um, and process optimization to take the amount of execution work they have in their companies down and then make room for idea work. And then once they have their employees, you know, thinking of new ideas and having permission to actually come up with ideas, because that's a big part of it, they build system to take those ideas to decision makers and bring them to reality. And everyone's saying, why are Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, Microsoft so strong? You know, what are they doing that's illegal? And they definitely have some nefarious behavior. 
But to me, the most important thing is culture. It starts with culture. It begins with taking down execution work, making room for idea work, building the systems to turn those ideas into life. And that's why they're lapping the economy more than anything. It's just not something anyone talks about. And I think if the rest of us start paying attention to these systems, we're going to have a much better chance of competing in their world, competing with them, carving our own, carving out our own niches to be able to make this happen today. And uh, and that's sort of that's the point of the book is I, I said enough of this, right? I, I want to know the secret sauce. Yeah, teach me yeah. the secret sauce. That's right. So I was just like, yeah, enough of this. I'm in Silicon Valley. Might as well let people uh, know what's going on so the rest of us can start to come and, and you know, act the way they do in our own companies and, you know, start to make some progress in evening this economy out. Yeah, it's fascinating that the the friction of taking idea from in someone's head to the market is one of the major barriers that people need to get over. So you've got to have the capacity within the company um, operationally, uh, innovatively, in, in order to be able to deliver that, right? But then you also need to give, have the talent and the time for that talent to come up with the right amount of ideas and then probably iterate on them and get rid of the bad ones and get rid of the bad ones and get rid of the bad ones. And then finally, you come up with this super left field thing. And that's how you end up with companies, you know, going through the book, it's mad, all of the different stuff, specifically Amazon, but all of the companies mm-hmm. have their fingers in li- little different pies. Like, it, and you think, well, why Why are they, it doesn't really seem to make so much sense. It's not part of their core business. But then you actually realize mm-hmm. when you're constantly innovating and iterating on these different things, you these ideas are going to come to the forefront and you're the person that's able to bring it to the market. It's, um, it's mad. That's right. And it sounds so simple, right? Give people more time for ideas and bring them to life. It's actually fairly complex. Um, and that's what these companies do uh, so well. And I can give you an example if you're interested. It is. So you, you mentioned Amazon. Amazon to me does this in the in the most wild way that I had no idea about and actually hasn't really been reported about uh, too much. Uh, and I got to see it firsthand when I was out in Seattle, spent a good chunk of two summers in Seattle, hanging out, um, reporting on Amazon and cat sitting. Uh, my friend mother's cat, Lady the Cat, <laughs> who's, uh, who was a good friend of the process and <laughs> cool. you know, really... Yeah, it was fun. Lady really kept me uh, kept me going in you know those days. I didn't know many people in Seattle, so it was nice to have that cat friend in that time. Uh, but I will say that okay. So Amazon. So one of the things I really wanted to know is how does Amazon use automation, not just in the factories and the sorry the warehouses, but in their headquarters as well? Because I heard some rumblings that like hey people are getting their jobs automated in in, in Amazon's headquarters, and you don't hear that too often. So what I found out is that they have a program called hands off the wheel and hands off the wheel automates a lot of the traditional retail tasks for employees in Amazon's retail division. So I'll explain. So typically when you, uh, you're a company like Amazon, you have these people called vendor managers and vendor managers are on the phone all day with, with suppliers saying we need this many units and this, these many uh, fulfillment centers at this time at this price. So you got a vendor manager, they're on the phone, Procter and Gamble, and they say, we want detergent, give us like X number of units of detergent, you know, in these locations, uh, we want it at like 650 a unit and we want it there, you know, in installments of every other week or something like that. And Amazon built an army of people who are working with vendor men, working with vendors to stock their fulfillment centers. And uh, all of a sudden in, in the mid 2010s, Amazon's like, wait a second, we have all this data that shows us what people want. Actually, our data probably knows better than the vendor managers what they want because it's precise. And um, what if we decide that we could have our machine learning team 
work on this. And they figure out how to use computers to do all this stuff instead of people. And that's what they did. They started a project that was called Project Yoda, um, which is instead of the vendor managers doing this, they would use the force, and the force being machine learning, <laughs> right? That's so good. And yeah, it's, it's a funny name. And, uh, you know, it's obviously like when you got nerds running the company, you're going to get good jokes like Lots that. Lots of Star Wars references, yeah. That's right, yeah. Um, and then they they moved, so they they worked on this a bit. They were they they moved uh, moved it further. The program changed from Project Yoda to Hands Off the Wheel, essentially taking telling their vendor managers, "You've been driving the car. Now we're going to let the machine learning do it on its own." And a good portion of tasks inside Amazon right now are all being handled by machine learning. So things like ordering, inventory management, even when a vendor wants to negotiate with Amazon. They, instead of picking up the phone now, start to like suggest prices in a computer portal. And Amazon says, yeah, okay, cool. Or no, that's all being done by machine learning today. Wow. I mean, in some, in some cases there's human intervention, but very little. And actually um, just citing like a figure to talk about the magnitude, one of Amazon's machine learning uh, heads said that vendor managers used to go, uh, used to be able to handle 1,000 products. products. Now they can handle somewhere around a hundred thousand. I later clarified saying it was just ballparking. It's not really, but come on, like that's that must be the um, you know in the range of the type of mag orders of magnitude more they're able to handle. Okay, so what happens now when all these tasks are being taken over by uh, machine learning? A dumb company would say, "Great, let's fire the vendor managers," right? But that's not what happens inside Amazon. So these vendor managers are now all on product and program manager jobs where they're basically professional inventors inside the company working to shepherd new ideas along. Um, and they have a, a process inside Amazon called the six pager where instead of starting projects uh, with a PowerPoint, they start it where you write everything down in six pages, single spaced, 11 point font, no pictures. And it's supposed to be like, okay, you're going to write the entire way that the project's going to look like, and we can get that to a decision maker pretty quickly. And it doesn't matter which level you're in, right? Just a couple of forwards can get that thing to Bezos or his top lieutenants. So that's the system to get ideas to decision makers. Okay, I'll just finish with a example to bring this all to life. Uh, there's a guy named Dilip Kumar in Apple in, in Amazon's pricing and promotions division, and um, Kumar spends a couple of years under Bezos as his technical advisor, uh, meaning that he's shadowing Bezos, uh, all of Bezos's meetings and learning how to do the Amazon uh, culture pretty well uh, and, and sort of how am, how does Amazon work inside? What is what businesses is it does it excel at? Typically, after someone finishes that, so he moves from pricing promotions to the technical advise, advisor job. Typically, when someone finishes that, they can take a big swing um, and when he finishes with Bezos as this technical advisor, pricing and promotions is almost all automated. So he's not going to go back and do that. So he gets together with a bunch of people from the retail division and says, we need to uh, figure out a way to solve the most annoying part of shopping in real life with technology. And they decide the most annoying part of shopping in real life is checkout. People don't like waiting on lines and, you know, scanning and all that stuff um, takes a lot of time. They just rather pick their items and get the hell out. So they started thinking, okay, maybe we were going to do a big vending machine, but they're like, okay, that kind of kicks the can down the curb. So they say, instead, um, what if we use computer vision and sensors and created a store where people could just scan it with a QR code, take whatever they want off the shelves, and then leave? And that is what became Amazon's Go Store, which exists now in a bunch of cities. It's still kind of experimental, but I've used it in San Francisco and Seattle, and What's it like? uh, I've tried it. 
oh, it feels like you're shoplifting. It's unbelievable. <laughs> like, you go in, you take the stuff, and you're like, I'm out. I'm free. I just got like nine Cliff Bars on the house. Thanks, Bezos. And then two minutes later, they're like, nine Cliff Bars. You're, here's God, your receipt. It, and Jeff. you're like, dang it, Amazon. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's really this wild, just wild experience. And uh, Amazon, if you read the between the lines of Jeff Bezos' annual shareholder letters, like they're going to make this a more prominent part of their retail operation. Um, and so because so it's just all the parts coming together, right? It's like you they've taken the technology, minimized execution work, made room for idea work, build a system to get ideas from people to decision makers. And when that system works as well as it does, you get another new invention from Amazon, which is Go. And this is sort of how they've been able to do so many different things from like a first party marketplace to a third party marketplace to a logistics and fulfillment center. Uh, uh, sorry, logistics and fulfillment operation to a cloud services division to a voice computing platform and a hardware manufacturer that does things like the Kindle and all of their speakers. And then not to mention an Academy Award winning movie studio and a grocer. <laughs> All of this is a, it, it's, yeah, this is a product of culture. And that's what people think, you know, there's this, when you don't see inside, there's this vision, oh, Bezos is the guy doing this. He presses a button and that's how it happens. Yeah. Actually, what he's done is built the culture to harness other people's ingenuity and bring it to decision makers. And that's how Amazon's been able to be so inventive. It's no surprise that they're so dominant, man. Like, Absolutely. How can you? How are you supposed to compete with that? It's a company who has the most innovation, the most resources to bring that innovation to market. So even if you have the idea, they can probably execute the same idea as you've had, but quicker and better and deploy it more through a, a wider geographic range and all the rest of it. I'd never heard of UiPath before. Can you tell us what U, UiPath is, please? Yeah, it's an automation company. So a lot of times people say, well, the tech giants are doing this, so I could never do it. But it's really not the case. And we talk about minimizing execution work, making room for idea work. There are off-the-shelf solutions that any company can use. So in the introduction of the book, I talk about this company called UiPath. And what UiPath does, its software will watch your screen as you work. So you sort of open up a session. And let's say you're like filling out a form. Uh, it can watch your screen as you work. And each button you click and each you know keystroke you make, you just label it to the um, to the machine learning system, and it will remember how to do it on its own. Uh, and so it can do it can fill out forms, it can send letters, it can move data from one spreadsheet to another. It can take over all this execution work that we do all day long, and you know take it over via automation. So. Um, I went to this conference in Miami and it was crazy. And CeeLo Green was the opening <laughs> singer, which was hilarious. He's going to the audience. All right. If you got someone you need to say, fuck you do now is the time. And they're all like, fuck you. And I'm like, you guys are like automating people's jobs. Like, is that, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, but, but, and it was amazing to see how many people, how many different industries were represented at this conference, let alone the stuff that it can do. But it was like, you saw automotive, you saw insurance, you saw health. Uh, you saw technology companies there. You saw banks. And, you know, one of the things that was striking to me was that this technology is available to people. Clearly, there's interest uh, inside companies to to put it into place. But it's almost as if they're like driving blind. They're like, yeah, we want to automate. But mm. I, I heard very little about the broader strategy of why to automate. So I do think that like if they're able to do this and put some of the lessons from the tech giants uh, in place, then they'll be in much better shape. Didn't you say that it's able to do hiring, it can sort hiring people, and then when it comes time to get rid of them as well, that this UiPath thing can send them their, their letter? 
Yeah, so it's able. It's able. I know it's wild, but it's able to write letters. So if you, you know, new hire letters are pretty formulaic. So when you have a new hire letter, your iPath can handle that. So of course you can have a termination letter that it can do as well. <laughs> it's, there's just something about it. Oh man! Um, so upon kind of seeing this big overview, obviously we've touched on Amazon, but there's Google, mm-hmm. Microsoft, and Apple and stuff as well. And it sounds dumb, but I, I kind of presumed that these big companies just operate the same way. You know, like when you get to the sort of size of these companies, you'll have optimized everything and the size of the operation will have whittled Mm -hmm. away any ability to actually enact real change, cultural or operational. And you just kind of, they were all all going to be super homogenous. But again, upon reading and having a look at the different ways that companies are deploying. Now, the end result's still the same, which is we need to be able to innovate quickly. We need to have a lack of friction uh, from idea to deployment. Um, and we need to keep resources and blah, 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 and look cool uh, and wear hoodies. Mm-hmm. But um, like, other than Hoodies that, are important. Hoodies are very, very important. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Like, I was surprised. I would have thought it would have been much more homogenous. That's right. Yeah, so I would say in Always Day One, I talk about how each one of these companies has... Uh, has uh, their own flavor to build it, putting these systems into place. So we talk about Amazon, it's the six pager, it's the use of machine learning. Uh, inside Facebook, it's a feedback culture, which is something that a lot of people might be surprised by. You know, Facebook isn't exactly the company that you think uh, is one that takes feedback very well, given that people from the outside have protested almost every product decision uh, that they've made and they've said basically, uh, like, F off, like, I'm going to do this on our own. Yes, exactly. Um, but inside the company, there is this feedback culture. And in the book, I actually sit in on a day-long feedback training where people inside Facebook are taught to give and receive feedback. Uh, major meetings end with requests for it. There are posters around Facebook's uh, Menlo Park offices that say feedback is a gift. And actually, the first time I met Zuckerberg, um, I was surprised because typically your um, your typical CEO briefing is the CEO will tell you, okay, sit down, here's 25 minutes of me selling our new product. Then the PR person will sort of watch your facial expressions, maybe allow you to ask one question, oftentimes just say, okay, and that's it. Shit. Have a is, good that day. What, is that what it's like being a tech reporter with the big dogs? That's right. Yeah, that's <sighs> usually what it's like. But with Zuckerberg, it was totally different because we walked in there and he's like, I want your feedback on this. It's like, okay. He and cares. He, he cares what you more think. Interested. Yeah, he seemed more interested in listening to what was going on than selling. And that's when I started asking people in Facebook's orbit what's going on. And that's how I learned that there's this feedback culture inside Facebook where people are encouraged to bring ideas not only to their boss but to their skip level manager and all the way up to Zuckerberg himself. And so feedback, a lot of people's people say feedback is about putting people in their place, letting them know what's going to happen before the review, right? So they're not surprised when they sit in there and you get like a meets or, you know, you, you're not meeting your expectations. Okay, you should know. I think that's a totally wrong way to look at feedback. I mean, it's good to not have your people surprised. But what feedback functions for inside Facebook is that it makes sure that people feel comfortable sharing ideas with anybody inside the company and then people inside the company feel comfortable receiving other ideas. And when Facebook has been told, hey, from people inside, actually we're not approaching this right, it has shown an ability to change and shift direction. And that's why it's gone from an online directory to a broadcast platform that operates largely on desktop to a mobile app that's still in doing this sort of broadcast to all your friends. And now it's changing again, moving to more intimate networks like groups and messaging. So this is all because of feedback. These aren't Zuckerberg's brilliant ideas on his own. It's, and if people, when they read the book, they'll see it's other people inside the organization 
pulling him aside and being like, hey, Mark, we're missing this important thing. We got to make a change. Yeah. And he, when he's listened, it's actually worked out pretty well for them. The CEOs are made to look like just these bottomless pits of innovation, aren't they? But it's mm-hmm. actually the it's the coalition of everything that's happened below that. So before we get on a couple of the other companies, I want to see if you can yeah. if you can do this. I want to see if you can try and personify each of the companies that you looked at into a character. So, for instance, I think Amazon would be uh, kind of the jock in school, super clean cut, dates the prom queen. Apple might be like the arty philosophy student who all the girls fancy, but he keeps himself to himself and spends mm-hmm. his lunchtime sketching trees. How would you sort of personify some of the companies that you looked at? Yeah, uh, Amazon would be the MBA that's brilliant, uh, but doesn't have very much empathy for other people. <laughs> okay, yeah, on the spectrum somewhere. Yeah, let's put them there. Yeah. Uh, so Facebook, who, Facebook is, um, is, almost like the, the the kid in high school that um, everyone thought was perfect, you know, that was good at sports and good at talking to people and, you know, was attractive, uh, but also sort of missed part of what living is all about because everything was so easy for them. Uh, yeah, yeah. No challenge. Yeah. No challenge. Yeah. So that's kind of what I think. Google might be, um, Google's just your classic nerd. Nerd with attitude, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, you know? nerd, nerd with a half sleeve tattoo. That's right, nerdy kid, and you're like, oh, okay, but not like you know, a nerd you feel bad about, just like yeah, nerd that you know, okay, this person's going to be very successful. Uh, Apple, Apple is like one of those uh, high society people <laughs> that you know speaks their own language and you know feels very comfortable around people like them, uh, but most of but when they try to get out to most of society. They can't really relate. Yeah. Microsoft. Okay. And then Microsoft is um, someone who's had a glow up. You know, they were like an ugly teen and they became the hottest person that you know. That's, That's Microsoft. It. You've nailed you've nailed Microsoft there. I, <laughs> I absolutely agree. Um yeah. so yeah, we've talked about Amazon, we've talked about the feedback and stuff in in um in Facebook. What characterized Microsoft for you? Well, Microsoft is this amazing case study because they were in this day two mentality under Steve Ballmer, their former CEO. And back in the day, all they cared about was Windows, their desktop operating system. And in the age where we were not doing any computing on the browser and using desktop computers instead of mobile phones, they were the king, right? And they knew it and Congress knew it and they ended up you know, bringing antitrust action against them. Uh, and then everything shifted. And this is sort of why time is generally more potent than um, government regulation or, um, you know, your competitors, because uh, Microsoft could sit on this, um, on this uh, desktop operating system for as long as it wanted, but the world changed. And we started doing computing on the browser. And we started using our phones, uh, instead of our desktops. And then what use is Windows It's much more? I mean, it is exactly how Bezos described that day one day two mentality, right? Stasis? Yes. Irrelevance? Uh huh. You know, slow, painful decline, check. Okay, death, it was heading that way until they had to change their their course. Um, and so after Bomber, a guy named Satya Nadella came in and took over and became the CEO. And Satya had been a 20-year veteran of Microsoft and worked on uh, Bing, which is kind of funny. Everyone makes fun of Bing, like, oh, that's just the shitty search it's engine. It's a special needs version of Google, that's isn't right. it? Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but yeah, it's, it's somewhere <laughs> in that range. Um, and so... 
the so the thing with with Bing is that um, it's a cloud computing system, and uh, because it works on it's a powerful program that works on the internet that has to make sense of all of these different uh, links coming in and, and spit something out to people that work. So because Satya had worked on that, uh, he had been able to. Um, uh, see where the future of computing was going. Basically saying, we're not going to work on programs that we install, like come in the mail and we install on our computers anymore, You know, put it on Windows. We're going to be working on our browser, and that's cloud computing, and there's going to need to be an infrastructure that's going to support cloud computing. And the funny thing about that is, um, when you enable cloud computing, you actually hasten Windows decline, because if you can access a program on the browser, you can use it on a Windows machine or an Apple machine or a Chromebook, and you don't really need Microsoft anymore, or at least in the Windows component. So it's actually a pretty gutsy move to say we're going to go support cloud first. And the other thing he says is we're going to make sure that our services are available everywhere. So Microsoft Office, you know, you used to only really be able to get on a Windows machine. You couldn't really get on the Internet. And that ended, and they made an app for the iPhone, which is sort of unbelievable given Microsoft's history. You know, back in the bomber days, you weren't even allowed to, or yeah, you're basically not allowed to have an iPhone or an Apple product inside the company. <laughs> is that true? And oh yeah, totally. People like would get scorned, and Bomber even pretended to smash an iPhone when he saw it in a meeting. No so and then Satya was like, okay, we gotta move past this. So what he did was he reoriented this company, which wasn't a day two mentality, brought it to day one. And then once he figured out we're gonna, the company was going to structure itself in a way that supports cloud, collaboration, the internet, um, then the tough job started, which was to change Microsoft's culture, which had been, you know, alpha male, lar- largest, I mean, loudest person in the room, yell at each other to a culture where they had to start using technology. And again, I'm gonna sound like a broken record, but it's really what happened, minimizing execution work, making room for idea work, channeling ideas to decision makers. And that's how Microsoft turned it around. And it's now the most valuable tech company, again, which so is have, unbelievable. Have they really turned it around? Because to me, as someone who doesn't really know, I'm not watching this, yeah. this share price. I don't know what's going on, who's got what amount of market and this, that, and the other. But to me, Microsoft um, still oh, now feels like just the granddad at the party type thing this sort of older guy who used to kind of maybe have it but now is playing second string to these other companies but it sounds like the work that the new ceo's done has actually given them a resurgence that's right yeah they're the most valuable of all the five big tech companies why which is uh because i do think that investors see the value in what they're doing which is moving towards the future so the products that they work on are not as sexy like cloud computing backend is not as sexy as an iphone uh, but it has, you know, a very bright future. And you look at now, like we're all sitting at home right now and Microsoft's collaboration uh, technology with things like Teams, the usage is going through the roof. So they are really moving to where the enter, like where, I mean, they're definitely B2B enterprise technology, but they're crushing it there. And there's a bright future for them. I mean, businesses have far more money to spend than consumers do on these sort of high high ticket, low volume kind of uh, apps and, and services, I suppose. But yeah, that's interesting. That is interesting that um that one person, and obviously he'll have brought the CEO will have brought a team with him and other people mm. have had to have get on board to deploy his ideas. But the a business the size of Microsoft's can be changed by the fundamental ideas and the vision of just some bloke. He's just some guy. You know, I yep. mean, he's a very capable guy, obviously, who understands what he's talking about. But he's just some fella. 
that's gone mm-hmm. like, I think we should try and do this. And then the entire shape and direction yeah. of a company changes. It's so mad. Yeah, it is amazing. And by the way, it's sort of uh, that that characterization sort of underscores how difficult it is to do what he did. Because it is one person that's pushing this change. And it's like pretty remarkable that he was able to do it. Most people that try uh, end up failing. But he was able to make it happen. Yeah. Okay, Google. Let's talk to us about Google. What was Google's signature special move? Their uh, their special move, like <laughs> I feel like this is like Mortal a Mortal Kombat. Kombat. That's exactly battle. what yeah. it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, they're like that uh, Mortal Kombat character that can go across the screen, you know, shoot across yeah, the screen. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you mean. Um, because they're, you know, Facebook, if ideas go up and down from the bottom to Zuckerberg, uh, inside Google, ideas go side to side, you know, cross divisions very well. And that's because Google's interconnected in the series of their own social networks. Um, they have email listservs that span the whole company. They have uh, uh, their own meme board, like a, almost like a Reddit or an imager where people make memes about the company and vote them up and vote them down. They have Q&As where people can ask the leadership any questions they want, although that's been pared back a little bit. Um, and most importantly, they work in an open drive, meaning they use Google Docs, Slides and Sheets, and the sharing on almost all those docs is set to open. So anybody in the company can go look into anyone else's documents. And at first, you know, people say that's kind of weird. But what it does is it allows people to get caught up uh, to speed on projects incredibly fast. And they can, you know, when you're in a Google Doc, you can also add your ideas and comments and people do that, right? So just like the six pager got ideas to Bezos quickly and the feedback culture gets ideas to Zuckerberg quickly, ideas inside Google can move side to side incredibly fast. And the example to show how this has worked really well is the Google Assistant, right? Which is their voice assistant. And the Google Assistant combines so many different products. It combines search and Android and mail and calendar and maps and YouTube. And in order to build an effective assistant, you need everybody working together. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be pretty dysfunctional and people won't use it. And people don't have a lot of patience for a voice assistant. Like if you say, hey, Google enough and it doesn't respond, <laughs> you're not going to keep saying it. You're just going to type this shit in. So, you know, so. Because they were able to collaborate, they're able to build this pretty effective uh, assistant. And and the assistant, again, is this evolution of search. It's another reinvention, right? Because when you speak with a voice assistant, you say, what's the weather going to be, right? How would you find that otherwise? Type it into search. You say, when's my package coming? How would you find that out? Type it into search or type it into Gmail. So if Amazon was able to get the lead because, got a muter because uh you know alexa started answering those questions instead of google google's domination search was really would really be uh, uh challenged but because uh google was able to reinvent this way through collaboration now it has a real foothold in the voice assistant space and is able to hold its own in its most important product is that going to be is the voice assistant space going to be as big as some of my friends think it is because i've got a couple of buddies who are addicted to siri like absolutely addicted, mm. they won't do anything. They refuse to touch their phones. Um, mm. For me, other than controlling music and stuff when I'm listening to it, I tend to not use it that much. But moving forward, can you see voice assist? Is it the next big thing? One of the next big things? I think it very well could be. And the reason why I say that is because we're still at like the pretty early moments of artificial intelligence technology. And what we're doing by talking to these things is training them. And every conversation they have helps them get a little bit better. So I think that um, it's amazing there's already tens of millions of these things in people's homes. Um, And as that grows, they'll get better at figuring out what we want from them. 
they'll get better at talking back to us. Like I even see that the Alexa starts to um, get more conversational with time. Like I say, set an alarm and she goes, all right, I'm setting your alarm for 8 a.m. tomorrow. You want me to set that for every day this week? And I'm like, how the hell did you know that, right? <laughs> so I do think, yeah, this is going to be big. It will be big. And they'll also start plugging in with other people's uh, products. And, you know, I, I can ha I have an idea why your friends like Siri so much, right? Because we're, I mean, especially now, we're all on our screens all the, you know, all this time. Uh, we're tapping, we're looking, watching. And it's like, you know, if we can do any computing by not having to deal with a screen, um, some people love that. And I think especially as that gets better, um, you know, people will really embrace it. So it's I'm bullish on it. Nice. Bullish. That's it, Alex Cantrow. It's bullish on, on voice, uh, voice commands. I love it. Um, that's an interesting point about how uh, voice control or other non-physical um, versions of input will affect our tech use, you know? Because if mm -hmm. you can do a ton of the things on your phone let's say it's a hundred years further on and we're able to, we've got microchips that can uh, detect the correct neurons that are firing in our brain and we can just control stuff with our brains or we've got some sort of wearable or whatever it is. The line between screen time and not screen time could either diverge or could completely come together so that either there's ba barely any screen time or the all time mm -hmm. is screen time. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I would bet that uh, we're heading towards a world where almost all time is screen time. But the cool thing about voice is it enables screen time to not be screen time, right? Like you can be plugged in, but it can be ambient sort of in the background. It's a great word something to use. requiring your full attention. That's a brilliant way to put it. I've never thought of it like that, but it is. It's part of the environment when you use, hey, Siri, or, or, or hey, hey, Siri. Is it, hey, Google. Okay, Google. Okay, Google. Hey, Google. I think both work. Got you. And then what's the yeah, Amazon? What's the Alexa, Alexa one? It's just Alexa. just Alexa. Imagine if someone's yeah. if someone's kid's being called Alexa. What a nightmare. I know, man. I'm Alex. I'm like one letter <laughs> away from a nightmare, man. Yeah, you Chris, are. you don't use any of these uh, voice assistants at all? Not really. Um, so I use, mm. I use um, Siri for controlling music and podcasts and mm. stuff like that. Mm. I know there's tons of things that I can do with it, but mm. I don't know. I don't know. And this is someone who's trying to downregulate his screen time and you know is into new tips and tricks and things like that but it's just not like I, I feel like trying to do it will end up creating more work than if i just put it in myself i'm like hey siri direct me home using this like this route and then it'll open up google maps instead of apple maps or apple maps instead yeah. of google maps or something so i think maybe maybe there's just a, another you know 10 or 20 percent of progress that needs to be made and then i'll probably just be all over it and i'll just be talking talking to my phone all all across the day um, yeah and it's probably because you're talking to siri that's why you're frustrated the other two are much better are they that's <laughs> yeah. interesting so i had yeah. um stephen wolfram on mm -hmm. you know stephen guy that created wolfram language yeah. wolfram wolfram mathematica and um talking to him about like those answer engines and the ways that for the people that don't know Stephen Wolfram is his company is the company that created the answer engine that's able to take words that you say convert that into code and then re-give you back whatever the answer is so it's actually super complex to take the noise that comes out of your mouth mm. work out what you meant turn that into something the computer or the phone can read and then give it back out and um the fact that even we take it so much for granted, man, but the fact that you can just make a sound with your face and then your phone does a thing is like 
totally unbelievable. It's unreal, yeah. man. And the fact that innovation just continues to pump away, you know, and then you've got, oh, well, a couple of like 10 years ago, maybe you'd watch like some 3D film with like a, you know, crap like red and blue things, <laughs> the cardboard things you used to get over your face. You'd be like, wow, this is amazing. You'd be at Disneyland. And then now you've got like an Oculus Go headset all in one no extra stuff required you just slip this thing on and now you're in like jurassic park fighting dinosaurs and stuff it's it's wild man i spoke to um a a lady as well who has the world's first phd in immersive storytelling so this Uh is like cutting edge vr stuff and she recommended that i go to jeff wayne's war of the worlds immersive uh vr experience down in london and i went to go and do it Dude, it is the wildest thing I have. That's crazy. Oh, like combination mm. of um, VR, AR, holographics, and real life actors. Dude, it was just like the the, the craziest two hours ever. You just feel like uh, I don't know. I don't know what the entertainment industry is going to be like in sort of thirty or forty years time when that sort of stuff gets scaled out. But you're not even going to watch movies anymore. You'll be living movies. And then, you know, I'm into it. I'm ready for that. Bro, that sounds it was great. So so good and then you go back and you're like i'll watch a youtube video of a trailer and you realize just how much less impact that has so yeah like when your iphone's able to throw smells at you and stuff like that that's when we're going to be that's when we're going to be killing it so okay apple my favorite one out of the lot everybody here is an apple fan what's going on with apple tell us well i'm sorry to disappoint your listeners but (laughs) it is uh a company with a culture that needs a transformation. Ooh, why? And I think that's because um, and inside Apple, they've been very good. I, I call it a culture of refinement. They've been very good at, at refining the iPhone, which is their flagship product, right? And they do that by keeping people in silos and keeping everything secret. And what that does, is it allows people to concentrate on their one task. So the people that make the battery life live longer, that's what they're focused on. The people that make the screen better, that's what they're focused on. The people that... Uh, make the iPhone thinner. That's what they're focused on. The computing power, that's what they're focused on. And they don't spend a lot of time distracted speaking to other people. And that's helped make the iPhone the best phone on the market. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I have one. Uh, but for Apple, it's made it difficult for the company to reinvent itself. And I think we can go back to the voice assistant uh, example. Mm-hmm. And and while your friends might be using Siri only, uh, be using Siri as the only way they use their phones, they're probably the only two people on the planet to do that because um, Siri is terrible. And the reason why Siri is terrible is because it was thought about as not as a voice platform, but as a feature on the iPhone. So just sort of like this fun thing that like a fun, magical assistant you could talk to, not something that could connect you via your voice to the rest of the internet. And because of that, Apple said, okay, well, Siri folks, why don't you sit in your own room? And that's not how it works. Like we talked about the Google Assistant. Google needed, you know, people across search and and Android and YouTube and Maps and Calendar, um, all these different divisions and, uh, yeah, and music to be able to integrate with each other and be able to talk to each other to be able to build this thing um, without any barriers at all. And inside Apple, these silos have prevented the Assistant folks from actually getting out there uh, in a way that would be meaningful and helping Siri uh, you know, become something that can overtake the Google Assistant and the Echo. Um, and the one, the one uh, example that I give is that, um, you know, the the Google. I mean, Apple gave Amazon a multi-year head start. It gave Google like a five-year head start on Google Assistant. Like Siri came out in 2012. These other things came out in 2016, 2017, 2018. And then Apple said, okay, finally they're going to build a speaker 
to put Siri inside of. Great. So they build the HomePod. The HomePod is not selling at all. It's, uh, it's sucks a total so embarrassment. Bad. And the Echo and, and the Google Home are in, in tens of millions of homes. And it's again, it's funny because like for Apple, Apple's so interested in design, right? So they think about the um, they think about the sound of the speaker and the look of the speaker and the feel of the speaker. Whereas the Echo is the ugliest uh, appliance I have in my whole life. It's disgusting to look at. I'm <laughs> looking at it now and I want to throw it out the window. But it's not about the speaker the way it looks. It's about the assistant inside. And so that's something that Apple's going to have to change because it's not going to be a visual or physical design first. It's going to be computer design, and that requires collaboration. And it's struck out on the HomePod. It's also struck out, I mean, yeah, I think it's fair to say it's really struggled to build its own car. It's trying to build a self-driving car. Okay. And the way they think about this, yeah, yeah, the way they think about this is sort of like the iPhone, right? The iPhone had beautiful hardware, great software, put it together, best phone on the market. Car, self-driving car is similar, right? Beautiful hardware, the um, that the way that it looks, and then and then you know functional software, which is the self-driving software. Bam! Apple should have the a lead on the market there. Mm. But it's had put this old iPhone style mentality into into building this car, so they don't let the machine learning engineers talk to each other that are working on different projects. So you'd have people working on the car people working on face ID. One of them is locating like lanes and markers and stuff like that. The other one is locating facial features. And it's been difficult for them to talk to each other, which means their technology develops slower. Then also there's been the influence of design, right? So design inside Apple is the is the most important division. First, they figure out how it's going to look, then they figure out what's going on inside. <laughs> so backwards the, engineering something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's wor- it's worked very well for a lot of products. But for the car, it just hasn't worked well. Because, um, and I spoke with some people who had worked on this, the design team asked them to take the sensors that are out there to figure out what's going on on the road and embed them in the car. Because typically with the self-driving car, it looks like this horrific, you know, rolling submarine uh, with all these different, you know, knobs and, and Satellite dish that was around. Oh. And it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks almost as bad as the Echo. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so, I, I, of course, Apple isn't going to be done with that. So they say, okay, take the sensors, put it in the car. So it looks much nicer, but for the machine learning engineers, it's much more difficult to figure out what they're trying to do because it's like putting blinders on your eyes, right? Now you can only see this, you know, this much and your peripheral vision is cut in a certain way. And then how do you make a a machine learn how to do self-driving if it can't get the full range of vision? And so that's one of the reasons why the product has struggled. So look, yeah, sorry, sorry, go ahead. I I just think that my uh, seduction into Apple is probably very common amongst like just normal consumers you know you think all of their products are super slick i'm speaking to you on a macbook pro that i upgraded to even though i didn't need to just because the new one looked good i got an iphone i got airpods i bought my mum and dad's airpods for like last christmas and the christmas before and blah blah you know like but because the design is so seductive and um so visceral and so easy to see right you know like microsoft perfect example like mm-hmm. i do not think sexy when i think microsoft but yeah money talks you know the numbers don't lie and they're the biggest the biggest company of all the ones that we've spoken about and they're doing mm-hmm. like some of the least sexy shit but i guess it all depends on what the vision is and the the other thing as well uh, that I've noticed when you're talking about Apple is it seems like a very old style approach to 
um, management and also careers within a company in that you've got specialization. You know, this is Henry Ford shit. You know, this is like 1910 shit. The guy that that turns the knob, he's the knob turner. And the guy that pulls the lever, he's the lever puller. And the, you know what I mean? And it seems like that siloing um, could go one of two ways. But given the fact that all of your competitors are, are being super effective with this super transparent free flow of information, it seems surprising that Amazon have done that. Do you think that they're going to be forced to make a change or start really losing losing ground? Yeah, and, and I do think that this sort of goes to show how difficult it is for a lot of companies to get away from the factory mentality, right? And Apple's definitely still in it. Like Ford is a good example of specialization, right? Like that's what happens inside the company. So I think Apple's going to be okay. I, I think that like the things that you're talking about, like I'm also, I have an iPhone, I have AirPods. Um, I'm talking to you through uh, an Apple computer. So I do think that they're going to be doing fine. But to go back to where we were in the beginning of the conversation, if the average company on the Fortune 500 lasts for 15 years now instead of 67, that means there's going to be shifts that will come along that they won't be prepared for unless they're ready to adapt. And to me, the main question is, is Apple going to be ready to adapt when those shifts come for it? Like maybe it is voice computing. Maybe it's some other shift that we're not aware of. Um, And are they going to lose their lead because of that? And I think it's quite possible. So I do still have hope that there will be a culture change there and they'll be able, I think they'd be as effective as they are today, even if they opened up a bit. Um, And uh, yeah, I think that they, if there's not a culture change, they'll be, They'll still make good phones, but they'll struggle to navigate the the next change. So they're kind, they'll kind of be like Microsoft if Microsoft stuck with Windows and didn't get into new businesses. Yeah, I get it. Look, Alex, man, it's been really, really awesome. Finishing up, final question. What is your uh, vision for tech or what are your predictions for the big things happening in tech over the next five to ten years? What should we be on the lookout for? I mean, I would say be, in, be on the lookout. So right now we've had like tech change our consumer lives in a big way, uh, meaning that like we're now we use Netflix to watch TV, to watch yeah, TV and movies. Um, and we all have phones and apps. Um, and it's really changed our experience living life outside of the office. And it's funny because in the office, it feels like we're still living in the 1990s sometimes. Um, given like the programs that we use. So I, I, my first big prediction is that we're going to start to see technology change our work lives in the same way that it changed our consumer lives. And I think work is always a little bit slower uh, to adapt. And I think that that's really um, going to make a difference for in terms of the way that we work. So I would look out for that. I think AI is going to be way more advanced and change the way that we live uh, in ways that I'm not even sure how to predict. Like one thing I've thought about. You're the guy, of, Alex. It has to be you. If it's not you, who's it going to be? Yeah. Well, I guess like it sort of goes to the point of, of the book, right? It can't be just one person with the vision. It's everybody's ideas that come together that, that actually, you know, push forward the change. Um, but it's going to happen in so many different industries. You know, my dad is a podiatrist. And so in, in the U.S., um, when when you're a doctor, you spend, you know, some of your time working with patients and almost all of your time filling out charts. And my dad, every time I come home, he's just filling out charts. I'm like, dad, do you do anything else but f- fill out charts? He's like, nope. So, I mean, it'll be amazing when we start to see this technology start to gain, you know, if the, if, if UiPath technology can write an HR letter, right? Why can't there be other technology that starts filling out the paperwork for doctors? I mean, of course, you'd have to have it at a, 
um, pretty high, you know, specification and have to, you know, understand privacy. But a lot of this stuff is is just like, you know, write down and spit back. It's not so, so complex. It's just you have to key it into all these different systems. So there needs to be technology to be able to do that. That might change the medical field because instead of having doctors spend their time doing paperwork, you might actually have doctors spending their time taking care of patients. And wouldn't that be cool? So and I think it changed government as well. Like I expect us to see if we have the political will to see leaner, more effective governments you know our governments are the ultimate uh, bloated uh groups bloated groups i mean talk about execution work all the government does is execution work <laughs> imagine those people had some time to come up with ideas to figure out problems like climate and poverty and health that would be amazing well the fact of so the matter I, is within a government you have to use the word think tank you know in that that's right the, the think tank yeah. is the exception because everybody that's else exactly is, right. is busy doing the ops that's exactly right, Chris. And that's a freaking big problem. So we need to work to solve that. Hey, it looks like, um, it, it looks so, like yeah. we've got a good handle on, uh, on what we're talking about. Alex, your link, the link to your book will be in the show notes below. Always day one. Highly recommended. Where can people go to check out your stuff online? Yeah, I appreciate it, Chris. So you can, um, yeah, they check the show notes for the book. Also, you can Google always day one and read some of the reviews. I think people have been happy with it so far. And then if you want to connect with me, uh, I'm a pretty online person. You could just type my last name into Twitter, K-A-N-T-R-O-W-I-T-Z. My DMs are open and I check my mentions. So I'd love to hear from you there. Amazing. Everything that we've spoken about will be linked in the show notes below. You already know what to do. If you enjoyed the episode, go and give Alex a follow. Let him know what you think. Dude, I uh, I really enjoyed that. I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to seeing what the next few years has got in store now. I'm excited. Thank you. Yeah, me too. It's, it's going to be a wild few years, that's for sure. I, I hope it becomes calmer and less trapped in our houses than it is now. Yeah. But yeah. We'll yeah. see. We'll see. Dude, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Chris. This was really great. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend. It would make me very happy indeed. Don't forget, if you've got any questions or comments or feedback, feel free to message me at Chris Willex on all social media. But for now, goodbye, friends. Yeah.